0: Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr Andrew Trisida from Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group and I'm joined by my friend and colleague Dr Peter Bagshaw, GP and
1: CCG Clinical Lead for Mental Health.
0: And also by another friend and colleague from another area of, of the country, Dr Sarah Coop. Welcome Sarah.
2: Thanks very much Andrew, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me today.
0: So, Sarah, we've got a title, which is restorative coaching. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, and how you've come to what you are, where you are now.
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks. So, my background is as a GP. So, I qualified about 20 something years ago and worked as a GP partner here in East Yorkshire for, for about 12 years. In that time, I really developed an interest in communication skills, training, was fortunate to work with medical students and had some coaching myself when coaching was a new thing. I remember people asking, what is coaching? What are you doing? But I had coaching myself around 2005, 2006. And really thought, wow, this is interesting. So I started learning a bit about coaching, undertook coaching qualifications, and then the communication skills um, teaching really grabbed me. So the rest of my sort of career, I left um, GP partnership about eight years ago, became salaried, and um, really went sort of a little bit freelance, working in various organisations doing ad hoc communication skills training, leadership training for, for mainly for doctors, but other healthcare professionals. But the coaching really really kind of stuck out for me. And that's something that I've, I've loved doing.
1: And Sarah, I've also taught communication skills to medical students at the University of Bristol, but I'm ashamed to admit I've never heard of restorative coaching. So can you tell us what it is?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I should have said now that I'm working as an educator for Medical Protection Society now. So, that's my full-time role, no longer working clinically, um, but working working in that role. So, really enjoying that and that gives me a chance to continue teaching, but coaching is still something really dear to my heart. So, restorative coaching, well, I think of that as really getting to what's under the surface, what's beneath the the behaviours, the actions that perhaps are holding us back from being our true selves. And so in coaching, often what we're doing is looking at, okay, where do we want to get to? Where are we now? How to get there? So a bit like, this is my destination that I'm trying to aim for. This is my current state where I am at, at the moment? What's the, what's the direction that I want to go in and what's the ways of getting there? And that's really, really helpful. I think what I learned from, as I said, sort of coaching and working with medical students and then in the other roles as communication skills trainer was often it's not enough just to set goals and change behavior. We need to think, well, what's holding us back? And what might be beneath the surface? So restorative coaching is all about getting beneath the surface to the roots of the sort of challenges that are holding us back in order to free from them and then move forward and, and be more successful.
1: And are you talking about trying to get beneath the surface of how we feel or beneath the surface of how other people feel? Or yeah, both. That's a,
2: yeah, that's a really good question. I think both. So I think beneath the surface of what fuels our actions and why we perhaps keep doing the same things that are getting the same results, but we'd like something different to happen. I think there's an old saying, isn't there? If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And is it, was it Einstein, the definition of madness, doing the same thing and expecting some different outcome? So I think, you know, yeah, look at what's behind the behaviours, what's really going on. And often that's about what we're thinking and telling ourselves. And actually we need to change that at that level. We can't just change our behaviours and expect it to be maintained. We've got to look back and think, well, what am I telling myself? What's the underlying thinking that's going on that's fueling that behaviour? And that's really helpful. So that's, I would say that's the most important thing, because at the end of the day, we can only change ourselves. However, a big part is also understanding what's behind behaviour in other people.
1: And a lot of what you're saying sounds like the basis of something we've described before, cognitive behavioural therapy, where you're looking at what underlies behaviours. Can you give us some concrete examples of things either that you've encountered or you've seen in other people where this has helped you understand?
2: Yeah, I think yeah, that's really helpful, isn't it? So yes, cognitive behavioural therapy is very much looking at, at- what's the thoughts that affect the feelings, which then lead to the behaviours. So, for example, if I was working with somebody who was wanting to go for an interview for for a post, so in in my work, that might have been somebody who was a junior doctor wanting to go for an interview as a consultant. And they were saying, you know, I've had several interviews, I've not been successful, Um, can you help me try and be successful at this next interview? So, traditionally, I probably would have thought, okay, how do you need to behave in that interview? What do you need to do? Um, What's the things you need to say in the interview that maybe put you a greater chance of success. And of course, that's really, really important. But what I realised often was the person I was working with knew what to say. They knew the answers, they had the knowledge, but something stopped them in the heat of the moment from actually being able to, to convey that. So when we unpicked that, often we were looking back into what were they telling themselves? So for example, someone might have come up with, well, actually, I'm telling myself, I'm rubbish at interviews. They'd had several experiences, drawn that conclusion. So they were going into an interview with that mindset. And of course, if they were telling themselves, I'm no good at interviews, I'll always fail. Even if that wasn't conscious, the fact that that was under the surface meant that set them up for, I suppose, for for more nervousness, more self-consciousness and less ability just to be themselves, be grounded. So that was one example, I suppose, of really looking at what's the mindset and then thinking, okay, bring that out into the light. Now you've seen that that's what you're telling yourself. What would be an alternative mindset that would be much more constructive and empowering?
1: And you touched on something that I used to use a lot with medical students where rather than say, I am rubbish, which is a, you can't do anything with that. Can you, if you're rubbish, you're rubbish and you can't change it. You say, right, what do you feel went well? What could have been done better? And that way you're focusing on the action. And and that's something that it's within our power to change is Is that the sort of thing
2: you mean? Yeah, definitely. I think because if we tell ourselves things like, I'm rubbish or I'm no good at this, we're labelling ourselves, aren't we? And actually we're then very closely associating that label with our identity. And that's not very freeing at all. I think I would often challenge somebody if they say, oh, I'm rubbish, to say, okay, what's the evidence that, that you're looking at that's telling you that you're rubbish? challenge that and is a different way of looking at it can we reframe that but also again separating themselves out from that label that they're giving themselves if they sort of say I'm, i'm so stupid actually what is it that you're doing that you're calling stupid so try and separate the behavior out and that can be quite insightful
1: and where do you think those messages come from a lot of people would say that their tapes that were played to us as children if if we're told that we're rubbish, that that we spend our adult life trying to unplay. That's the basis, isn't it, of I'm okay, you're okay. Is is that a, a theory you go along with, or do you think it's a different cause?
2: No, I think I would go along with that. I think I think all of us, to to a greater or lesser extent, for positive in positive and negative ways, obviously um, received a lot of messages, and many of those have created the positive attributes of who we are today. But of course, many of them are also obstacles that, in our adult life, we're still trying to process and and undo. And I think the first step is often being aware of those messages that are often buried. I think that's why I'm thinking about restorative coaching being looking at the root cause. They're often buried beneath layers, aren't they, of of other things that we kind of pushed pushed right down. So. I would say, yeah, it's 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 those underlying messages that we've taken on board, even if they weren't spoken directly. It was the conclusion that we drew at the time. And I think that's often key as well that, you know, what interpretation did you make from that experience? And it might have been childhood, it might have been for some people later on in life through, it could have been at school, it could have been from peers, it could have been um, later on in life, as I was saying, through the interview experience, that they've drawn that conclusion and therefore then sort of Im- Im- embodied with that to a, to a to a degree and yeah other people could have had the same experience and drawn a different conclusion but it's helpful to get to the bottom of what's that almost belief about yourself that you're living by and how's it showing up for you so a question i'd often ask is how's that working out for you
0: interesting so how's that working out for you because i I was my question was about to be how do you start and what happens when you do it so i'm Mm. interested to hear more i might i might perhaps offer you a negative belief that you could help me on maybe so
2: go for it there's nothing like um you know taking a live example so yeah what, what are you thinking
0: okay so um what I'm thinking is I'm just not good enough at tidying up and completer finishing and Sarah I'm just rubbish at completer finishing that's just one thing I'm not good at like new things too much so I have yeah. a problem there
2: so how would you like things to be instead
0: um I enjoy new things and new ideas, but it would be very nice to have things tidy and it would be very nice to finish things before actually um starting the next thing. I think that would be mm. much more productive
2: and I guess where's the evidence that you're not very good at doing this? what are you what's what you're seeing at the moment or what's telling you that
0: um, I'm good at new things, I think, uh, or I like to think I am. Um, I can see an untidy desk, I can see an untidy floor, and I can see clutter. And I can't hear my wife's voice because she's very patient with me. But if if I could, it might <laughs> there might there might be a hint of disapproval, but or tolerance perhaps. It's really curious. Sorry, just to develop it, I'll I'll happily do the ironing, I'll happily do the washing up, I'll happily do all sorts of tidying up of other people's stuff. But when it comes to my own, not intimate, but my own space, um, it's it's easy to have a gap there.
2: Yeah. And I guess I'm curious to know, when you look at that, that you're noticing around your desk, what do you think about it?
0: Um, two things. One is I can use denial to pretend that it's not even there. And so uh, on the current piece of paper I was writing on just, just now, there are probably about 15 different pieces of paper under it. Uh, and what a load of, you know, I'm sure some of them aren't relevant and some, some are all, well, they're certainly time expired. Um, so the evidence is that there is clutter, disorganised clutter um, near me.
2: And if you're going to reframe that and look at what that actually gives you in a positive way, just for a moment, so just take away any negative connotation around it. What, what does it give you in a positive way that you wouldn't otherwise have? So it gives me a lot of
0: bits of creativity, some of which are actually finished and some of which aren't, but they just aren't filed. So there's some work in progress and there's some work uh, that already is finished, but it just hasn't been completed.
2: So knowing that or thinking in that way, how does that then free you up to perhaps view it slightly differently?
0: Um, It frees me up to view it differently as an opportunity to, with probably not more than 15 or 20 minutes work to, or application, not work, but application to actually tidy the desk and tidy what's sitting on top of the printer and suddenly see, realise I can see the top of the printer rather than see 15 pieces of paper.
2: Hmm. So knowing that you have a choice about it, how does that seem?
0: I'm sorry, I'm chuckling and smiling because um, it's such a simple question you ask, but it's so powerful because it's liberating to realise I have a choice. It's liberating.
2: Mm, liberating, yeah. I think choice is choice is. People often say it's that it is liberate. I think liberating is probably the best word. It's very freeing, isn't it? I think when I realised. I'm just going to sorry I'm I'm going slightly off on a tangent because you were just it feels like we got to a point is that okay to leave it just there for a second but I think when I first realised I had a choice in terms of I could carry on doing my automatic reactions behaviors thoughts you know but actually recognizing I had a choice puts us back in that sort of driving seat around who's driving the bus you know of, of our lives and I think that's often that liberating moment that another question I might have asked you Andrew was well who says it's the negative you know aspects so if we're calling ourselves you know I'm just so untidy I'm so disorganized who says and just checking in who whose voice is that yeah what are you well, thinking
0: there is a little voice in my head which is my grandmother's voice in a very teasing um pleasant way but saying oh you're a mucky pup
2: <laughs> uh,
0: and, uh, and and I spill things sometimes and make messes and there definitely is a mucky pup bit about it Peter
1: So, Sarah, you've given us a fantastic lived example of restorative coaching and uh, presenting us with alternatives and choice. If people want to do this themselves, are there coaches they can turn to? Because anyone, I presume, can set themselves up as a life coach without necessarily having the right skills. Or is it something they can do themselves? Or would you recommend that it needs somebody from outside to be able to have that insight?
2: That's an excellent question. Lots of parts to that. I think I'm sure there are people who look at coaching slightly differently from this angle or some people who are coaches who actually, without calling it restorative coaching, would take that deeper approach. Um, I'm I'm sure there are people who have got that experience and that insight to do that. I think, yes, there's a lot of coaches out there who are absolutely excellent and are focused on one specific area, one or two specific areas. You you can have um, health coaches, interview skills coaching, as I talked about earlier you know, there's all kinds of of specific coaching. I guess if people are interested in really delving a bit deeper, there's a couple of options. One is to, to undertake some CBT, as you talked about the cognitive behavioral therapy, because this goes along the same sort of paths. I guess the difference though, is still that I'm not focusing on significant issues around the past. It's still very much focused on, you know, who are, who are you? Who's your authentic self? Who are you really? Where do you want to get to? So it's all, future focused in that way and what's currently in this current situation holding you back yes it does affect stuff from the past does bring into our current situation but i think i think we can do it ourselves but we need a you know that level of self-awareness to be able to ask those sorts of questions and be curious
1: and i i can just add in if i may that anybody who wants cbt it's it's available Uh, talking therapies are available throughout uh, the uk and it can be done by self-referral it's primarily for people with mild to moderate depression or anxiety, but really anyone can uh, apply for a course, can't they? Uh, it's often six sessions and it will cover the sort of things that you've been covering. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's really true. And and just think about other resources as well. I mean, there's certainly quite a few um, apps and other programmes that people can access online. I mean, quite a lot of those are paid resources, but can be really, really helpful for, for people to have a look at and, uh, and engage with. So certainly, Searching for sort of CBT type of coaching would bring up um, a range of resources. I'm just sorry. I'm just curious about the mucky pup example that, that Andrew just gave. Actually, and, and um, it sort of played on my mind slightly. Just thinking if we can just go back to that, Andrew. Just having said that, and you said about your you know, your grandmother's teasing voice. What what sort of stayed with you since you since you sort of mentioned that a few minutes ago?
0: Um, what stayed with me? Well, um, just that it's it's not. It's a little voice that can be there sometimes and it's teasing, but it's true because I might spill something or I might I might not clear up or I might make a mess. And it. there is a truth in it. And I wonder how much of it is just the way I am and how much of it I'm responding to a little voice or a little script that's running in the background that I'm allowing to be there from the age of, I don't know, three, four, five, six, and... That's something at the age of sixty-three I could pro- possibly let go, and I'd be interested in your coaching approach—the restorative coaching approach—to deal with that that thought form, if that's possible.
2: Yeah, and that was the reason I sort of wanted just to quickly go back to it because I think it's really interesting, isn't it, when we do pick up those little memories from the past that, like you say, we you know some can be really innocuous, some can be a little bit more sort of wounding, um, and some can be quite painful to to think about. But actually. You know they, they come up for a reason, and then again we've got that choice about how we deal with them. So what I'd often encourage them to do is almost to sort of take that that memory, that that voice you said, the teasing um, of your of your grandmother, just in that moment, recognising there was some truth in it at the time, and just kind of hold it in terms of just imagining you're holding it in your in your hands for a moment, and you think you were probably about three or four at that time, and now sort of aged. Um, a bit older, as you've just given your age away at 63, if you look at that, so if you're going to hold that out there, the sort of mucky pup kind of um, memory in your hands, and now as you look at it now, what do you as the adult, mature Andrew want to say to that that part of you?
0: Really interesting, Sarah, because just your inquiring, supportive, kind voice has almost brought tears to my thoughts uh, and to my face, and and thinking of a sadness that a small child felt because it felt I felt wounded or sh- ashamed, probably. Um, and holding that in my hands and thinking about it, um, I can soothe my soothe that younger self. I can say it's okay, and it wasn't personal. Uh, it was a throwaway comment, and it's it's okay and um, it's okay to feel. Um, what you felt and maybe it's time to oh I've just sighed I've given Ooh. myself permission to let it go maybe it's time to let it go
2: yeah and, and what would you as the older Andrew and the adult Andrew say to the child how could you what instead of labeling yourself self as you were then as a monkey pup what would you with what you know now actually say to that child instead that would be encouraging
0: I say, no i would say you enjoyed playing and you always enjoyed playing and the playing didn't always include tidying up and some of it was mischievous and some of it was creative and some of it was accidental but it's okay and it's okay not to take it personally it's okay not to criticize and it's okay to now this is a big one it's okay to see tidying up as part of the play
2: Ah, uh-huh. interesting mm. yeah And and I think it's interesting as well, isn't it, thinking that was your grandmother's interpretation of what she was seeing. That was the meaning she made it. And actually you can make, you have a choice again about another meaning to make, and that can be quite freeing. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. That feels very different. Mm. Thank you very much indeed.
1: You've taken us, Sarah, into another interesting area, which is uh, I mean, it's often labelled transactional analysis, isn't it? But it's like Freud's id and ego and superego. The idea that we all have an inner child, an inner parent, and an inner adult, and that um, if, if we hear the adult, we'll tend to ref, uh, refer back to it as a child. Um, is is that something you want to... Do you feel that's a a valid way of looking at things? Is it important? Is it helpful to, to understand those dynamics and, and maybe try and readjust them as as you did with Andrew
2: yeah I think it can be really helpful it's not something I would always do I think it depends what people offer so any during any coaching sessions people will offer different insights just as Andrew's done there in terms of what came up for him and then I wouldn't say I suddenly think oh I need to do some transaction analysis I'm, I very much trust the process in terms of what comes up for me then to respond to that intuitively um But I think if people haven't come across transactional analysis, it's a really helpful frame for looking at the way that we interact with people. I don't know about you, but I I know I'm in my late 40s, but I still, when I visit my parents, can go back into teenage mode quite quickly and think, why am I behaving like a child? And so I'm recognising that transactional analysis is at play. Or sometimes I'm the parent and they're the child. I'm thinking, actually, how do I change how I respond? This comes back to restorative coaching on an adult-to-adult interaction. What am I telling myself in those moments? that's leading to me to then behave as a child what am i telling myself that i might make me parental and actually what i'm wanting is that adult to adult interaction and what do i need to tell myself what meaning do i need to make of their behavior that helps me to to actually to be myself in those moments so i think transaction analysis is a really helpful tool when we want to change our the dynamics sometimes in in those kind of relationships
0: Thank you. Transactional analysis was um, described partly by Eric Byrne originally in his game in his book Games mm-hmm. People Play, which is quite chewy. But we've described one of the first parts of the first six, sixty pages, which are very chewy. The other bit is that as as people, as human beings, we all need approval, uh, and small mammals uh, are um, uh, can wither up and die from the lack of emotional support. Well. Human beings don't, but they end up with behaviours, and so on the whole, many of us become either little pleasers or maybe little rebels because we want that. We want that attention because being given attention, whether it's positive, ideally, or negative, is much, much more comfortable than being ignored. And if I can bring in the wisdom of the young now, so I, we were walking down on the coast with our youngest daughter, age seven, many years ago, and uh, I said gosh, Rose, you're very well behaved this evening. And she said, I haven't got my big sisters with me. I don't have to play up to get your attention. (laughs) So Mm. she she understood transactional analysis rather well without ever having to learn about it. So perhaps it's intuitive and innate within us.
2: Yeah, I think it often can be. I I was thinking that one of the common root causes of a lot of the behaviours that we find ourselves in that we want to change often does come back to a common theme around I'm not good enough for many people. That's often sort of the bottom line for many people. So it's often, it's quite interesting that that seems to be a common root cause. And so then bringing that into the light and actually reframing that and challenging it can be very, very freeing for a lot of people. So if you have that sense of that, that might be behind some of your um, actions that you want to change or is holding you back, you're not alone in that. And and certainly I think transactional analysis and and looking into sort of CBT can be really freeing. In Thank those you. ways, yeah. And, and
0: coming back to CBT, we were talking about uh, resources earlier, and Peter, you were s- s- saying how it's available through IAPT. There's a really interesting resource from Australia, actually, and we can we can put the resource in the uh, in the um, in the program notes later. But later, but it's from the Centre for Clinical Interventions from. Uh, western australia it's actually cci.health.wa.gov.au but we'll put that in the in the program notes and self-help resources for mental health problems such as anxiety assertiveness appearance appearance concerns uh disordered eating health anxiety panic perfectionism well that's an interesting one for doctors isn't it um self-esteem sleep social anxiety and it's I, I use it professionally uh, when I'm working with doctors uh, as patients and and point them towards this as a resource. But it's not for doctors. It's for anybody. Uh, and it's one of a number. And I'm sure Peter has got some others that you might like to suggest.
1: I'd add, uh, I'm OK, you're OK, uh, which is it's very American, but it, it's clearly written, I think. Um, but I, I think you're absolutely right, Sarah, that an awful lot of the underlying problems we see are due to low self-esteem. Uh, And and people just not feeling good about themselves and how sad that is. Uh, So anything we can do to help love ourselves uh, will help us love other people in the world as well, won't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I have quite a a strong picture of restorative coaching as a tree. And I don't know if other people who like pictures or metaphors would find this helpful. But thinking, you know, we're all different. We're we're all different trees. We've all been planted in the the situation that we're in. um, And in some ways our core values are like the trunk. And then the leaves and the fruit on the tree are how we sort of express our personality and and our identity in terms of you know who we are. I guess if we don't like the fruit on our tree, if the fruit isn't sort of showing well, then we might want to think about, you know, well what actually is the soil does the soil need kind of re-energizing or do I need to kind of get more sunshine sunshine metaphorically? You know, what's actually stopping the fruit on our tree sort of really flourishing? And I think it's I found that quite helpful to look at again that as a, as a metaphor, there's all different ways you could interpret it, but then really getting into what's what's going on with the roots beneath the surface um, that's affecting the growth of the tree and and the fruit that it's, that it's bearing. I don't know what a, you think about that, Andrew.
0: I think it's a great metaphor. And just to take it a little bit further, um, uh, a colleague, Jill Edwards, years ago, um, I think she was quoting somebody else, but the quotation she said was, no apple tree tries to grow violets. And many of us in life actually our natural talent is to bear one sort of fruit, but we feel constrained and we ought to be doing something else. So there is something about listening, well, listening to our intuition, but also being our, being true to who we really are and finding
1: out what, what unique talents that we've got to offer to the world.
2: Yeah, I think that's so true.
1: And it may be that some of us, when we were saplings, were a bit bashed about and bent and had a hard time. And we've grown up, with slightly twisted trunks and, you know, aren't, aren't straight and tall and beautiful. But that doesn't make us less valuable, does it?
2: No, no. And, and, may, and hopefully will not affect our, our sort of fruit bearing capacity either. It might make us more resilient because they've been gnarled and twisted because of various storms because sometimes mean that we're stronger as a result. I remember reading, and I can't remember where this was from, but I remember reading a great analogy, a bit like your, you've just said about apple trees not bearing violets. Well was someone saying trying to just change your behaviour is a bit like stapling pears onto an apple tree. Yeah, it could look like a pear tree, but they're not going to then come back the next year. And actually, you're not fooling anybody. So if we just try and change our behaviour, then we're not really really dealing with either the root cause or probably being true to ourselves. So I think that's quite an interesting way of looking at it.
0: Interesting. You're tempting me in talking about nature to reflect on two things, one of which how lucky we are to live in Somerset and to be surrounded by by beautiful nature and countryside, and I—I I would be tempted, but I will restrain myself from talking about bark flatterinies or other tuning forks from nature that might help us in various ways. Maybe placebo for adults, but they seem to work on children and animals. But that's a—that's yeah. another story for another another day.
2: But I think pictures from nature just resonate really well with all of us, don't they? And I think I think just re- encouraging the listeners to reflect on—if you, know, you were going to pitch yourself as a tree. What do you see? What type of tree do you have? How strong is the trunk? What's the environment like that you're planted in? You know, what what what's your what's your fruit and your leaves like? And I think it's really helpful just to get that picture. And if it's not quite as flourishing as you'd like it to be, what will help it grow? And what do you picture your yourself as a tree to look like in say a year, two years, three years time? And that will often give you some insight into again what might be going on beneath the surface in the roots and perhaps what what to focus on first in terms of moving forward. So That's another approach I will sometimes take with people is go more for the metaphorical questioning. And that can be quite, that can sometimes make it a little bit safer. You know how you said, Andrew, you know, bringing bringing out that memory brought tears to your eyes. So sometimes actually digging down into root causes can be painful. And so making it a little bit safer can be more metaphorical analogies. I've got other examples I could give, but I think that that one probably resonates with most, most
1: people. It's a brilliant one. We talk a lot about nature and the restorative power of nature. And yes. so, for you to bring that into restorative coaching, I think is absolutely fantastic. It ties I up think well. That's doesn't an image it? that will, will hopefully uh, resonate with a lot of us and stay with us. Great.
0: Absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, we're out of time. I think we could talk for a lot longer. But thank you very much indeed, Dr. Sarah Coop, for coming and joining us today.
2: Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for, for inviting me on.
1: Thank you very much, Sarah. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical
2: Commissioning Group.